بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد my dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome to today's session on prophetic emotional intelligence I want to share some background with you before we jump into the seminar uh, or workshop rather and um, it goes back to me receiving this wonderful wonderful gift by Sheikh Mikhail Smith who's the author of the book it's called with the heart in mind and i was fortunate to visit dallas a couple of years ago when i met the sheikh and he gave me this book as a gift and i was very very intrigued by it because prior to meeting the sheikh i was already studying uh, emotional and moral intelligence within children and when he gave me this book i i thought to myself this is just absolutely profound so i made an intention at that time that when i get the opportunity i would actually love to teach this book so we get to around uh, September of 2019 now, and I'm just getting ready to teach uh, the seminar. And the day before, or actually three days before I was supposed to start it, uh, my father, rahimahullah ta'ala, passed away. And as you can imagine, it was a, a very, very difficult time. A lot of emotions to process, a lot of things to do uh, and to prepare for. And I ended up having to delay the class by, by a week. But with that being said, that one week in between taught me such profound lessons that I understood the wisdom behind why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had timed everything the way that he did, or at least part of the wisdom. And that was that in life you have to experience certain hardships and difficulties before you can convey their wisdoms and their messages to other people. And as we talk about emotional intelligence, you'll notice that a lot of it has to do with your own self. You need to be, under, be able to understand your own emotions, process your own, own emotions, and understand what triggers those emotions. Only when you have understood those emotions within yourself are you going to be able to understand emotions within other people, how they manage and process, and also what triggers those emotions in other people. Because two people, they are a part and parcel of the equation in emotional intelligence. And we're going to get into the, the definition that we're going to be using today. But with that being said, Alhamdulillah, it was a great privilege and honor for me to teach that book, uh, to teach this book in September of 2019. Uh, it is up on the YouTube series in a four part, and I shared it in the resources at the end of the class as well. And Alhamdulillah, since then, I would say that I've taught a summarized version of the class, um, you know, at least half a dozen times now, Alhamdulillah. And it's always a privilege and honor to do so because I see the tangible benefit in it for myself and also for the community every time we engage with this topic on prophetic emotional intelligence and how you develop and you know cultivate relationships to help them reach their highest degree. So with that being said, we're going to jump into the presentation now and I'm going to be sharing my screen with you so that you have um, the presentation in front of you. I will also make the presentation available at the end of the session so that you can access it then as well. Sorry, just give me one second. Um, here we go. Let's do that. And then click on this. Okay, there we go. And I'll put it in full screen and we're good to go. Alhamdulillah. So when we're talking about emotional intelligence, what are we referring to? 
we're talking about the acknowledgement, processing, and management of emotions within oneself, as well as within another party. And this can be an individual, or it can be a group of individuals. And you're doing this for the sake of reaching a desired goal within the relationship, a desired goal within the relationship. So you're using your knowledge of emotions, its management and processing and triggering inside of yourself, as well as that of in others to reach a common goal. And that's what we're talking about in terms of emotional intelligence. Prophetic emotional intelligence is to analyze the seerah of the Prophet wasallam and his ahadith from this lens and see how the Prophet wasallam actually did it. Now, understand that this is uh, an ijtihad that is being made. This is not something that is absolute, but rather this is just a, a psychological lens that is being applied to certain ahadith and the seerah of the Prophet wasallam. Specifically, you don't find this topic mentioned in the Quran or in the Sunnah, but once we learn about this topic, we can see that the Prophet ﷺ had mastered it. And this becomes a very important tool in terms of relationship management when dealing with other people. So let us firstly understand the burden that was on the Prophet ﷺ. And that burden, it starts off with the Prophet ﷺ being the final and last messenger for humanity, for all of mankind, understanding and knowing that there are no prophets after the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that is a huge amount of burden to place upon one human being and realizing also that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala doesn't burden a soul more than it can bear. So obviously Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala had created Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam spiritually, emotionally, physically to be able to carry this burden. Now, this was such a heavy burden upon the Prophet ﷺ that Abdullah bin Mas'ud he says that one day I heard the Prophet ﷺ praying and he just kept repeating the same ayah over and over and over again. And this was the ayah in Surah An-Nisa, verse number 41, where after A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَكَيْفَ إِذَا جِئْنَا مِن كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ بِشَهِيدٍ وَجِئْنَا بِكَ عَلَى هَأُولَاءِ شَهِيدًا and how would it then be when we shall bring a witness from every community and shall bring you over them as a witness? That Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam will be a witness for his community, for the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam on the day of judgment. And as we know, we are going to be, um, you know, this ummah that is the final ummah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about. So there's a, a very special place and position that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. And the messenger of, of Allah, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he encourages us to have children so that we can increase our numbers in the ummah. Then with that being said, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam coming as a witness for and against. And I believe that is where um, the stress actually lies, where you have to testify for and against people that people, yes, followed my sunnah and followed my tradition, or no, these people didn't follow my sunnah and didn't follow my tradition. And that is a very burdensome position to be in. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ continued to recite this ayah and weep and weep and weep till his beard was, was wet and moist and that you could even see a, a puddle of tears uh, on the floor at that time ﷺ, due to the burden that he felt. So now that this burden has been placed on Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that he has to be the final guide, the final messenger for humanity, we also realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to 
innately placed within Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam some certain tools, some certain strategies, and he's also going to learn them through his interactions as he is growing up. So now, this intelligence that Allah subhanahu wa taala has given Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is a very unique and special intelligence, and it's very important to understand uh, what intelligence actually means. So going back to the book that we mentioned with the heart in mind by Sheikh Mikhail Smith, the book is divided into four sections. So section number one is the concept of intelligence and he uses Al-Muhasibi's theory of intelligence. Then section number two is on prophetic emotional intelligence. Section number three is on moral intelligence and section number three is on radical change. So when we're talking about intelligence, the Prophet ﷺ had to be given this special type of intelligence to be able to deal with people and also have them accept the truth, commit to it, stick to it, and act upon it. Traditionally, when we have thought about intelligence within you know, uh, Western academia, we've used you know, what is called the intelligence quotient, the IQ. How high is your IQ? And that is how we would judge people's intelligence. But over time, people started to realize that there are different types of intelligence and then different intelligence theories came about that it's not just one type of intelligence. And then you develop social intelligence, moral intelligence, uh, emotional intelligence, and, a different, and these different types of intelligences. Now you see that in Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he developed and innately had all of these intelligences. And this was a prerequisite for him becoming a prophet and messenger for that perspective. Because it wasn't enough just to have the knowledge, but rather Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had to convey it in the most accepting of manners and then cultivate those human beings to being the best possible version of themselves so that they can lead their own selves, their families, their communities, and the ummah at large after the demise of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So you here you have uh, Wahab ibn Munabih, one of the tabi'een, praising the intelligence of the Prophet wasallam that he had to be the most intelligent of people. Now, he didn't go to elementary school, middle school, high school, university, no masters, no PhD, but he grew up in the school of revelation, of wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the divine qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So anything that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam could have possibly needed in order to convey the message Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala innately placed inside him or taught him uh, through life and revelation. Now, what does success actually look like? And one of the things to look at is how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam made people feel as if they were the most beloved and important people to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam even though in reality they were not. And this is where I want to highlight something, that as you learn emotional intelligence, if you do not accompany it with moral intelligence, it is merely manipulation. So if you can learn to manipulate people's emotions, you can get them to do whatever you want. However, if you're using it for your own personal gain or you're not using it for something positive, then that is actually something very, very destructive. It is very, very destructive. But if you accompany it with morals and ethics like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us in the Quran and through the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa then you actually have a very powerful tool in how you cultivate human beings to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well as being the best version of themselves. 
So now if you look at this famous hadith that uh, I'm quite confident that some of you may know, uh, Amr ibn al-Asr anhu, he comes to the Prophet wasallam and he says, O Messenger of Allah, who is the most beloved of people to you? And the Prophet wasallam, without hesitation, he says, Aisha. And then Amr ibn al-As, he says, O Messenger of Allah, I don't mean from the women folk, but I mean from the men. And then he says, her father. And then in certain narrations, he stops over here. In other narrations, he continues and he says, Umar and Uthman and Ali and their different versions. But the point being, Amr ibn al-As, when he came to the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, he felt and he sincerely believed that he was the most beloved person to the Messenger of Allah, when in reality, he wasn't. And here we see that the Prophet وسلم, he had this charisma, he had this personality, he had these traits that when you were with him, he made you feel important, he made you feel loved, and for some people, the most loved, right? When in reality, from the perspective of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, that wasn't the case. And then what I also love about this hadith, is the open frankness of the Messenger of Allah Like there's no sugarcoating it. The Prophet clearly understood what Amr ibn al-As wanted and what he wanted to hear. And this shows us that sometimes in life, you shouldn't give people what they want to hear. You just have to be honest and straightforward, not intending to hurt them, but just being honest and straightforward because that is the most empowering thing for them and for yourself as well. And you see that it did no harm over here. Amr ibn al-As's feelings weren't hurt. He understood the reality of, okay, I need to come back to reality and understand that clearly his wife and his best friend are going to be the people that are most beloved to him. And, you know, I need to check myself at that time. So when we look at success, it's about how people perceive you in the relationship. Do they view you as a dictator? Do they view you as a support system? Do they view you as someone that loves them and takes care of them and values the relationship? How are you perceived? And it's not about what you believe, but it is about how you are perceived as well. And you will notice that for the vast majority of relationships, you cannot say absolutely all of them, but for the vast majority of relationships, if you genuinely care about people, genuinely love people, genuinely support them and build up their confidence and want what's good for them, they will recognize that in you and will believe in that relationship. But if you just try to fake it and you're just there when you want something and you need something, people will pick up on that as well. And a part of being a good believer is that you genuinely invest in the relationship. You genuinely invest in the relationship, helping people with what they need and being there for them in their times of difficulty and in their times of happiness as well as the Prophet ﷺ was. Now, understand that the default uh, position in every relationship has to be one of gentleness, mercy, and compassion. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he reminds the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ with. After a'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim fabima rahmatin min Allahi linta lahum walaw kunta fadlan ghalidh al-qalb lan fadlu min hawlik that by an act of mercy from God you O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam were gentle in your dealings with them had you been harsh or hard-hearted they would have dispersed and left you this is in surah al-imran verse 159 so here the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is being reminded of the great favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
that he was placed with a he was created uh, and lived with a, a gentle demeanor that his default demeanor was one of gentleness compassion and mercy and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also reminds him that had you been harsh or hard-hearted with the people then people definitely would have dispersed and this needs to be the default in all of our relationships as well that we deal with people with mercy and with compassion um, and overlooking their faults and desiring what is good for them and having husnadhan with their actions assuming the best of their actions as the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam often did now with that being said the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam he had two components to his life one which was a prophetic life and a prophetic being and that is everything that came to do with the deen of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he was absolutely perfect in nothing more could have been done by the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam from that perspective he did not fall short in delivering the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But he was also human at that time as well. He was a human being that had blood and he, you know, was uh, was mortal and had those traits as well. So there are very, very few instances where the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam could have had a moral intelligence or sorry, um, an emotional intelligence slip. And we see that one of the most obvious examples that uh, some of us may be familiar with is in uh, Abasa wa Tawalla, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is giving da'wah and uh, Abdullah bin Abi Umm Maktoum comes to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam wanting to hear about the message and learn about Islam but he's just a blind man, he doesn't have a significant position in society, uh, does not have much wealth and doesn't have clout. Whereas the Quraysh, they have all of those traits and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam preferred the Quraysh at that time in giving them da'wah even though Abdullah bin Abi Umm Maktoum had this gentle heart that was receptive to Islam the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did not give him preference so Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala taught the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and yes it is a difficult lesson to learn especially when you're being corrected by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala himself but the beauty of that is that anytime the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam could have made a human error, could have made a human mistake, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was there to rectify it and to advise the Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so that he could fix it. And that is why when you look at emotional intelligence, from our perspective, we don't have that divine revelation coming down to us to correct our mistakes. So that means we have to be extra, extra careful with how we interact with people. Because if we don't rectify those mistakes, if we don't rectify those relationships, there's not going to be anyone there to help us with it. So we need to rectify it for ourselves and keep that in mind that be gentle for the vast majority of times, only use harshness when needed and when mandated. And we can talk about uh, that a, a little later on. And then also, if the relationship is severed, the better individual is always the one that initiates reconciliation efforts. And that is who the believer is meant to be. Now, let us understand the framework that the Prophet ﷺ worked with. And this framework works on, on, on three levels or three tiers. And this is uh, the way the Prophet ﷺ helped people reach their true potential. The first of them is helping people understand their pain and helping people navigate through their pain 
and get out of their pain. Then number two is helping people see what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed inside of themselves and help them reach their truest, utmost potential. And then last but not least is understanding that people will make mistakes and you have to overlook those mistakes. You have to be very pardoning of them. You can't hold it over their heads and taunt them with it and not forgive them for it. But in order for the relationship to continue to progress, there has to be overlooking of those mistakes. Now, where do we get this from? We get this from this wonderful ayah uh, as we see in Surah Tawbah, verse 128. After, A'udhu Billahi that indeed there has come to you a messenger from amongst yourselves. It is severe upon him. It heavily distresses him the pain that you feel and he is most eager for your welfare and benefit and he is full of kindness and mercy towards the believers Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, let's break this ayah down. And we're going to spend quite a bit of, uh, of time on this slide over here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there has come to you a messenger from amongst yourselves. What does that mean exactly? Often we may think that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he came from the culture of the Quraysh. He came from the tribe of the Quraysh. He understood their language and spoke their language. He knew all the things that they were familiar with. And that is what it often gets restricted to, that he is from his people and he knows the way of life of his people. But I believe there's a deeper meaning to this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not just send him to the Quraysh. Yes, they were some of the primary recipients of the message or intended recipients of the message, but they weren't the only intended recipients. It was all of humanity and all of mankind. So there had to be something more general that is more encompassing that the Prophet ﷺ can relate to people with. And that is pain. And you may think, subhanAllah, pain? Why pain? Because the inevitable reality of life, my dear brothers and sisters, is that we're all going to experience different levels of pain throughout our life. Now let's break it down in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ is born, and uh, a few months uh, after, if not uh, prior, his father passes away. Five or so years later, his mother passes away. He goes in the care of his grandfather. He too passes away. He's in the care of his uncle, Abu Talib, and he marries Khadija radiallahu anha, and both of them pass away. The Prophet ﷺ has children, and all of his children pass away in his lifetime, except for one, Fatima radiallahu anha. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam comes with a message of tawheed, of, of love, of hope, of you know keeping good ties and helping people to the people that are closest to him, his family and his tribe, and they rebuke him and they reject him. And when there's no other solace, he goes to his distant relatives in Taif, thinking that they may accept his message. He's only coming with goodness. He doesn't want anything for himself. Yet they too pelt him and turn him away till he bleeds. He arrives into Medina and he sets up a treaty with the tribes 
that are there, hoping that they can build a state based upon piety and goodness, yet those people too turn to be treacherous and betray him when he needed them the most at times of war. There were individuals that the Prophet ﷺ trusted and they betrayed that trust. And these are the, the, the hypocrites uh, that were in Medina. So now you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ and it's just one level of pain after another, one level of trauma after another. So now when the Prophet ﷺ has experienced all of this pain in his life, when he meets someone, he's able to recognize people's pain. And in his mind, he thinks to himself, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and this is in, in the colloquial speech, you know, been there, done that. That if you're getting divorced, I know what that's like. You've had a parent pass away, I know what that's like. You've had a child pass away, I know what that's like. You've been betrayed by someone, I know what that's like. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has been through these experiences and has experienced that pain, has had to overcome that pain with the help and guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that when he meets people, he recognizes that pain and he knows what advice to give them so that they can come over it, so that they can come over it. And then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there has come to you a messenger from amongst yourselves, meaning that he has experienced the exact same pain that you have gone through and are going through, and his example can help you get through it. Now, why is experiencing pain and getting through it and navigating through it so important? Because if people do not get, learn how to manage and, and overcome the traumas that they experience, they're always held back in life. They are going to be emotionally stinted and are going to have such deep struggles that they may not even understand that will you know, become a hindrance in their relationships at school, at work, and in everything else that they try to achieve because they have not worked through their traumas. And at this point, I, I just want to share an absolutely wonderful documentary. I mean, an absolutely wonderful documentary. And obviously, we can never 100% condone everything in it, but I would say for the vast majority of it, it is uh, based upon Islamic principles, even if the uh, the producer didn't intend it. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma. The Wisdom of Trauma by uh, Gabor Mate. And it is just absolutely phenomenal. Subhanallah, when I think of prophetic function, one of the prophetic functions is helping people overcome their traumas. And that is what the Prophet wasallam did. So um, it's available online. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact website, but if you just type in Wisdom of Trauma, Gabor Mate, uh, it'll come up inshallah. So with that being said, the Prophet wasallam he recognized that in order for people to progress, he has to help them navigate through their pain and overcome their traumas. Now, how exactly does that work? When people go through a traumatic experience, often there is a sense of guilt and there's a sense of shame. People feel a deep amount of guilt and a deep amount of shame with those traumatic experiences. Now, let's try to, to reframe that. You come into Islam, and what is the very first message you receive? That anything that you did prior to Islam has been forgiven. 
And for me, subhanAllah, that's such a profound experience that someone may have killed someone, you may have committed zina, you may have drunk alcohol, done drugs, whatever it was, whatever it was, you come to Islam and all of your sins are forgiven. And that's a very powerful thing that a guilt, a shame, someone may be carrying, recognizing that this is wrong, and they now come into Islam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven you. And that is part of the equation of uplifting that shame and uplifting that guilt. Now I know someone may be thinking, hey, what if you're born into Islam and you've done these things? Well, the beautiful thing is that through Tawbah, it's the exact same experience. Islam is just a greater form of Tawbah. And every time you continue to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you get those exact same perks. You get those exact same perks. So as you continue to repent, you're helping yourself deal through that trauma and traumatic experience that you've gone through. So that is just one way the Prophet ﷺ helped people deal with their traumatic experiences. And once you've dealt with their trauma and dealt with their pain, then you can start focusing on those intrinsic qualities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed inside human beings that everyone is different at. And this is a remarkable thing about the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. No two major companions were the same. And I, I highlight major companions because those are the ones that we knew. Those are the ones whose lives we know. You know, Umar radiallahu anhu was not like Abu Bakr, who was not like Khalid ibn Walid, who was not like Mu'adh ibn Jabal, who was not like Abdurrahman ibn Auf, who was not like, you know, uh, Talha ibn Ubaidullah. Like they were all so unique and so different. Yet they all excelled at what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had naturally created them for. So understand this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has naturally placed inside each and every one of us that which we are created for. The Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, That whatever you were created for will become easy for you. Right, so some of you are good at business, it's going to become easy at you. Some of you were created for engineering, it's going to become easy for you. Some of you were created for the arts, it's going to become easy for you. And the Prophet وسلم, he recognized that in people and he helped them achieve it at the highest level. And that is where <clears throat> your deep connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeking his help and guidance, seeking mentorship, uh, you know, all of those things come into play. So we've dealt with so far It's severe upon him The pain that you feel And we actually jump one part So we dealt with That he desires what is good for you But let's go back just a little bit And I just want to highlight this again That it is severe upon him The, the pain that you feel So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Was uh, a very empathetic person he had a deep level of empathy with people and he could sense people's pain and as we are developing and cultivating people's uh, relationships with people you have to be in tune to their pain and we're going to, to highlight this a little bit later on but when it comes to communication people don't always articulate the pain that you feel so you have to be perceptive of the pain that they are feeling, either through their facial expressions, through their tones, through their body language, whatever it is. And that it is only when you are empathetic enough that people will have the ability to trust you in order to help, uh, for you to help them navigate through their pain and through their traumas. Then we get to Harisun Alaikum, 
and that he always desires what is good for you. And now let's get to the last part. That he is overlooking and compassionate and merciful with the believers. And I cannot highlight this enough, subhanAllah, that in relationships, you have to be willing to overlook people's mistakes. And there are so many reasons behind this. Number one is that just like we want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to overlook our mistakes, we have to overlook the mistakes of others, right? That pardon and forgive, do not love that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should forgive you, as is mentioned in Surah An-Nur. And also, even in our own human interactions with other people, it is inevitable that we will make mistakes and we're going to fall short and, you know, we're going to hurt people unintentionally. And at those times, we want people to overlook our mistakes and our shortcomings. So just like we want others to overlook our mistakes and shortcomings, then we also have to overlook the mistakes and shortcomings of others. And then number three, once you realize that every relationship will have its shortcomings, you also realize that the only way for relationships to progress is to overlook those shortcomings. Now, if those shortcomings are repeated, then obviously you need to have a conversation and discussion about them. However, if it is just a one-time thing or, or a few-time thing, then overlook it and let it go. You know, Imam Ahmad, he was asked about good character. And he, he was asked, yeah, Imam, is it true that overlooking people's mistakes is nine-tenths of good character. And Imam Ahmad, he said, rather it is all of good character. All of good character is learning to look over people's mistakes. And that is what the Prophet did. That unless there is a need to educate them and help them extract a lesson from it, or it is something that is repeatedly being done and they're not recognizing it, the Prophet would overlook it. And you find this in, in, in a lot of situations that the Prophet وسلم, he would stay silent and overlook the people's mistakes unless there was a, a lesson to extract or something to educate them on. Then the Prophet وسلم, would point it out and educate in the best of manners. But you have to learn to overlook people's mistakes in those relationships. So this is what I call the prophetic framework. Again, this is from my own uh, ijtihad, my own you know, ability to deduce. And there's a, a lot of work that can be done with this. So to summarize what I'm saying is that in every relationship, you have to try to assess what people's pain is by being empathetic with people. You help people overcome their traumatic experiences. You recognize the potential that they have and what they can excel at. You help them to the best of your ability, reach that success in those things that they can excel at. And then when, a, when they make a mistake, you pardon and overlook and seek forgiveness for them and advise them when the time is right in the most appropriate of manners. And this is what I call the prophetic framework for emotional intelligence. Now, what are the challenges that come with this approach? The challenges that come with this approach is that uh, emotional recognition, uh, emotional management, this is not something that is taught to us. And there's two main schools that this needs to be taught in. Number one is in your early primary years as a child by your parents, and then at a psychological academic level as you're going through school. And 
let, let's look at this from a, from a, a perspective that as a child, when you are being brought up, you learn about anger through the pain that you feel. So you burn your hand and you get angry and then you get sad and you cry. That's one way of learning about those emotions. But how about something that doesn't directly bring you pain? We learn that through observation. We learn that through observation. So the way our parents dealt with anger is the way we learn to deal with anger as well. The way our parents deal with frustration and sadness and anxiety and stress, we learn all of those things by observation. And our mind recognizes that if such and such thing happens, then such and such is the response. Such and such is the response. And that is why if you want to teach your child to be emotionally intelligent, one of the things you have to do is rather than hiding your emotions from your child, is to explain to them why you're reacting in such a way. And this is why psychologists, they, they recommend that one of the best things that you can do with your child is an educational-based experience so that they can see how you process challenges and how you navigate through them. And this will excel the child's learning process of those emotions. So you can imagine you're, you're doing like this 3D puzzle and you're getting frustrated. Man, why isn't this puzzle piece fitting in? Why can't it this work? You know, how do I do this? Your processing of your emotions, your processing of your frustration is a great lesson for the child. And it is a great teaching experience for the child. And that is what needs to be done, right? Uh, that was uh, just a, a tangent that um, I wanted to avoid, but we went down. So now getting back on track, that because we're not taught these things, we don't have the emotional bandwidth even to deal with our own problems and our own stresses. And I'm speaking about society as a whole right now, that if you look at society as a whole right now, what are the coping mechanisms a lot of people use when they have uh, anxiety, stress, um, you know, that they feel a, a form of event-based depression, what do they do? They often go to substances, whether it is alcohol, whether it is drugs. Some of them go even further and, and react out with, with promiscuity. You know, all of these things happen as a result of people not having emotional bandwidth to deal with their own problems and worries. And if you cannot deal with your own problems and worries, you're not going to be able to help anyone else. And this is why when it comes to emotional intelligence, we started off with recognizing your own emotions, management of your own emotions, understanding what triggers your own emotions. Because if you don't have that understanding of yourself, you're not going to be able to help anyone else effectively. Yes, at a surface level, you can help anyone and everyone. But effectively, you can only do so once you have recognition of yourself, once you have knowledge of yourself. And it is based upon that, that because we naturally avoid pain, as human beings, we're created to hate pain, right? No one, want, no one says, hey, I want to go and experience pain today. No one says that. But pain is something that is needed for growth. Pain is something that is needed for growth. So now, once we have this aversion to pain, one of the reasons why there is no emotional investment in relationships is, dude, I have enough of my own problems. I don't have time to deal with yours. How often do we hear something like that or even feel 
like that when we engage with people. I have my own problems. I don't have time to deal with your problems, right? This is something that we may experience from time to time. But the reality is, if we want to cultivate deep relationships, then you have to have emotional investment into that relationship. Emotional investment starts off with you being able to manage and process your own emotions, being able to set up your own healthy boundaries, and then helping other people, and then helping other people. If you cannot take care of yourself, you will not be able to help anyone else. And that is why those boundaries are so needed. They are so needed. And Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. The Prophet وسلم, he actually had a problem with boundaries. He actually had a problem with boundaries. He was so soft that any time, day or night, no matter what he was doing, if someone came knocking at the door, the Prophet وسلم, was just there to wanting to help. And he couldn't set those boundaries of saying no. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to set those boundaries for him. That don't just barge into the house of the Prophet Don't just call out on the Prophet Muhammad from outside of his house. Give him space. And then when you go to visit the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in private and seclusion, bring a gift. These are all commands from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because the Prophet وسلم, was so soft, he couldn't set those own, his own boundaries. And again, like I said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala isn't there to do that for us. So we have to do that for our own selves, that you have to set those boundaries and create those boundaries. And this is for the greater good of being able to help people. And once you have done that, only then can you have emotional investment. Now, that's what I wanted to speak about. When we speak about emotional investment, is it is about being there for people in their times of need but also in their times of happiness. You know, as, as the famous adage goes, when you share your grief with a friend, it is half the grief. And when you share your happiness with a friend, it is double the happiness. And that is what we need to strive for, is being present, being present for people. That whenever they need someone to help process their grief, we're, we're there for them. And then whenever they have something to celebrate, we share in their happiness and we share in their celebration. So the challenge of this approach is you have to deal with your own trauma and your own pain and your own experiences before you can help someone else. Now, this is where I wanted to do a, a quick case study. And this is the hadith that some of you may be familiar with, that a young man came to the Prophet Muhammad wasallam and he says, O Messenger of Allah, give me permission to commit adultery. Give me permission to commit zina. And the people turned to rebuke him, saying, quiet, quiet. And the Prophet ﷺ said, come here. The young man came close and he told him to sit down. The Prophet ﷺ said, would you like that for your mother? And the man said, no. By Allah, may I be sacrificed for you. The Prophet ﷺ said, neither would people like it for their mothers. Would you like that for your daughter? And the man said, no. By Allah, may I be sacrificed for you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, neither would people like it for their daughters. Would you like that for your sister? And the man said, no, by Allah, may I be sacrificed for you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, neither would people like it for their sisters. Would you like that for your aunts? And the man said, no, by Allah, may I be sacrificed for you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, neither would people like it for their aunts. Then the Prophet ﷺ placed his hand on him and he said, O oh Allah, forgive his sins, purify his heart, 
and guard his chastity. After that, the young man never again inclined to anything sinful. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ said to him, then hate what Allah has hated and love for your brother what you love for yourself. I would like you to take just two minutes, take two minutes of your time right now and look at, based upon what we've studied so far in terms of emotional intelligence and see what the Prophet ﷺ is implementing. See what the Prophet ﷺ is implementing. So right now, um, it is 12.56 my time, 2.56 your time if you're in the uh, East Coast. Um, so let's just say we go exactly until 3 p.m. So exactly until 1 p.m. my time, I'll give you guys three minutes. And in three minutes, we can reconvene. And for those of you, if you need to take a break, go get some water. If you need to quickly use the bathroom, you can do that as well. And then exactly in three minutes, we will reconvene and talk about some of the lessons that we have taken from this case study. Bismillah ta'ala. Jazakumallahu khairan. Timing. Jazakumallahu khairan for that. Okay. So this is the case study that we have of a young man coming to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And we can recognize his initial pain, which is he has this physical desire that needs to be fulfilled. He has this physical desire that needs to be fulfilled. That's what we've recognized so far. But now let's step back a little bit and see what else we can um, decipher and discover from this. The fact that he feels comfortable to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, with this teaches us a very valuable lesson. And remember, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he had this welcoming presence. And that is something we want to create for ourselves. That is by being cheerful, by being non-judgmental, by helping people genuinely. So we deeply want to help people. That is how that presence is created. And that is how that comfort is created that no matter what the issue is, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, wouldn't turn people away and would not judge them or make them feel uncomfortable about it. So that is what we learn about the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that even something as what we would consider taboo, someone felt comfortable coming to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to discuss with. Number two, is it possible that there's another level of pain where it's not just the physical pain, but there's an emotional pain? And I believe that is possible as well, that perhaps this young man, he's actually fallen in love with a woman. He's fallen in love with this woman and they want to, to take that relationship to the next level. So there's even that emotional pain that is there. Is there another emotional pain? And I think, yes, without a shadow of a doubt, is that level of guilt that why am I feeling like this, to, to wanting to do something haram? You know, why is this there? How do I process this? How do I navigate through it so all of these levels of pain are there so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is uh, tuned in is recognizing that pain in this young man now the vast majority of people they haven't dealt with their traumas they haven't dealt with their problems so that when another person comes in and expresses their pain and expresses their problems the vast majority of people turn those people away, reject them, and rebuke them. And when the world rejects people and rebukes people, the Prophet ﷺ used to bring them in. The Prophet ﷺ used to bring them in. So even though they're saying, quiet, quiet, the Prophet ﷺ brings him in even closer. 
So those that felt the greatest levels of pain, the Prophet ﷺ would bring them even closer. So those that are on the fringes of society, the Prophet ﷺ would make sure that he brought them even closer to deal with their pain and to deal with the issues that they're dealing with. The young man came close and he told him to sit down. And then the Prophet ﷺ starts going through a process with him, starts developing a consciousness in this mind. And this is where you learn a very valuable lesson that in the conflict between desire and reason, you need to go through a process for that reason to overcome that desire. You know, there's that famous statement of, of Qatada uh, عنه, from the Tabi'in, where he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he created animals with desire, but without reason. And he created angels with reason, but without desire. And he created human beings with both reason and desire. So when a human being allows his desire to overcome his reason, he is worse than the animals. But when a human being uses his, his reason to overcome his desire, then he is even better than the angels. And he is even better than the angels. So the Prophet ﷺ is helping this man develop a framework for himself. That when you develop this framework, then it will not only sustain you this time around, but even for the future, even for the future. What is this framework? That the way that you treat people is the way that you too will be treated. And that is why if you do not like this for your mother or for your daughter or for your sister or for your aunt, then how can you like it for someone else's mother, for other, someone else's daughter, for someone else's sister, for someone else's aunt? And that is the general framework that if you view the way it impacts people, if you do not want to be impacted like that, then do not impact others in that way either. And the Prophet ﷺ walks him through this logical framework to help him overcome even those future instances. So now at this time, this young man has understood, okay, this is what needs to be done. That if I want to fulfill this desire, I have to marry her. I can't just fulfill this desire by itself. And you see that the young man, he's so appreciative of this. He's so appreciative of this and he's very respectful. And this is why he kept on saying, may I be sacrificed for you. Just the level of respect that they had for the Prophet and then that is not where it stopped. The Prophet ﷺ placed his hand on him. And some of the, uh, the versions mention his chest, that he placed his hand on his chest. And he said, Oh Allah, forgive him, purify his heart, and guard his chastity. And guard his chastity. Now, we may focus on the dua. But what is also of great amount of significance is the concept of physical touch. Physical touch is such a powerful thing, such a powerful thing. Now, let's look at other hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says that whoever wants to soften their heart, let them caress the head of the orphan. Physical touch takes place. Whoever wants their sins forgiven, let them shake the hand of the other believer. And as you're shaking your hands, the sins are falling off. If you look at the story of Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu anhu when he was going through his process of tawbah 
and it's finally been revealed that he has been forgiven, he came across hundreds of companions. But who does he remember? He remembers Talha bin Ubaidillah. Why? Because Talha was the only one that gave him a hug. Talha was the only one that gave him a hug. So when we talk about emotional intelligence, it's not just about empathy. It's not just about recognition of emotions and being in tune, but also using physical touch appropriately. Being able to give someone a hug and squeezing them and showing them that you're there for love and support. When people don't feel that, and then they feel it again after a long time, it is such a, a stress-releasing experience. And that is why naturally as human beings, when you see someone in pain, you just want to give them a hug because that is what people need. They feel secure when you give them a hug. So that physical touch is so important. And after that, the young man never inclined to anything sinful. And that is with the physical touch and the dua and the logical training of how to overcome this process. And this dua is also very beautiful that he says, oh Allah, forgive his sins. That if this man has done it in the past, then oh Allah, forgive his sins. Or if he's done something on the way to this, perhaps from what the eyes have seen or the ears have heard or the tongue has said, then forgive those sins that have taken place. Purify his heart, meaning from haram desire. Purify his heart from haram desire and guard his chastity. And it's amazing how this dua encompasses all of the things that this man was feeling. So perhaps his heart needed to pur be purified from shame and guilt. Perhaps his heart needed to be purified of that deep lust and desire that we have towards the opposite gender when we are in love, right? So all those things are purified. All of his previous sins and then guarding his chastity. This is very, very important for young people. Very, very important for young people. So I thought this was a great case study uh, that we can use as an analysis where you recognize people's pain, you find their potential and you use the tool that is best for their potential. Prophet could have clearly said, it's haram, end of story. But no, he walked him through the process and taught him what he needed to sustain that process. And then if that man were to ever, um, you know, overcome, uh, to ever fall into a sin, the Prophet would have overlooked it. But the Prophet made dua for him to further strengthen and his resolve that the messenger of Allah made dua for me, how could I do this sin now, right? So he's setting him up for success. He is setting him up for success. So now, what do relationships require? They require sincere empathy. Why sincere? Meaning that sometimes you will get into a relationship and you will care about people, but it's for ulterior motives. It is for ulterior motives. Some people do it as a job, right? They do it just for the sake of getting paid. Your psychologist, uh, your psychiatrist, some of them are sincere, but some of them, they just do it as a job because they get paid to do it. So when you want to have a, a quality-based relationship, there has to be sincere empathy for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and for the sake of genuinely helping people and developing that relationship. Then number two, perceptive emotional understanding. So you need to understand what emotions this person is going to go through, what you can anticipate and expect, and also understand that not everyone can articulate their pain. Not everyone can articulate their pain. So you have to pay attention to people. You have to pay attention 
to people, their body language, their tone, the words that they use, uh, the way that they say it in, all of that is required, perceptive, emotional understanding. And then last but not least, profound emotional investment, profound emotional investment. And a lot of this is just being present for people, being accessible by people. Um, so that when there is a moment of sadness and grief, you are there for them. When there is a moment of happiness and joy, you're there to share it with them, but just being present. And this also requires vulnerability. You have to be able to be vulnerable with people. And that can only truly happen if you are, you know, comfortable with yourself. If your private life is just as good or better than your public life is just as good or better than your public life. But if you're leading a public life that is a great image, but your private life is a disaster, is an absolute wreck, it's not going to be possible to have that profound emotional intelligence. It requires that your private life is just as good or better than your public life so that you have nothing to hide. You don't have a secret side to you. You don't have a hidden side to you. And therefore, you have this congruence in your life between your two lives, your public and your private. And only then can you be vulnerable. But if you're carrying a whole bunch of skeletons in your closet and at any given moment, you're so afraid that what if people find out what's in my closet? it becomes very, very difficult to have that emotional investment so that you can deepen the relationship and then actually allow the relationship to grow. So these are the three keys that relationships require as we see from the Prophet Now, let's understand communication. And this is what I was uh, alluding to. And I wanna go back to the example of the Prophet one day as he's walking by, he sees uh, a camel. And it starts shouting out to the Prophet ﷺ. It starts shouting out to the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he communicates with that camel and realizes from it that the worker is overworking the camel, putting too much weight, not allowing enough breaks, not giving it enough water. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he goes to this man and he says, Fear Allah with regards to those who cannot speak. Fear Allah with regards to those who cannot speak. And for me, subhanAllah, that is such a, a profound hadith. And you can look at it at, 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 at a much deeper level that if you look at it from the instance of a child, they aren't able to articulate their problems. They aren't are able to articulate their challenges. So you have to be perceptive in terms of what their problems are and what their challenges are and recognize the different tones that they have. And this is something just miraculous about mothers, naturally for the most part, that when a child cries due to the mother's experience and how in tune she is to the child's pain, she's able to tell, is the child hungry? Is the child not feeling well? Does the diaper need to be changed? And or does the child need to sleep? And they're able to figure out and process all of that pain. So similarly, like how a mother is with her child, we as human beings need to be with all of humanity and recognize that not everyone is able to articulate their pain. So sometimes you have to dig deeper from their verbal uh, uh, things that they say, from their tone and expression, from their facial uh, expressions. What I find really profound is that Camel, you know, it must have had hundreds of people walk by every day. And... It couldn't reach out to anyone. 
yet it recognized something in the Messenger of Allah that made the camel feel so comfortable that I can express my pain to the Prophet and he's going to be able to do something about it. So when people are in pain, they will naturally recognize someone that is in tune and is in attuned to their pain and communicate it with them. But you have to have the right person for that. And that is something that requires that development of empathy and wanting to recognize people's pain and also having dealt and experienced your own pain. Because until you've expressed uh, experienced your own pain, you're not going to be able to recognize it in others and help others with it. So all of that was something that is very profound about the Messenger of Allah So understanding how people communicate that very little of communication is what people actually say, 7%. Then you have 38%, which is tone and expression. And then you have facial expression and body language, which is 55% of communication. So if you really want to learn to communicate with people, don't be a literalist. Don't just go on their words, but pay attention to their tone, pay attention to their facial expressions. And this requires developing a baseline. So you, if you've seen on TV, you know, when people do polygraph tests on, on, on TV, they always start off with standard questions. What is your name? What is your date of birth? You know, where do you live? Those baseline questions help you understand a baseline of what, you know, that, that pattern is meant to be like. And then when people lie or they're acting shifty, then at that time you'll see a spike, right? So from the baseline, you recognize the spike. So what is needed over here is you need to spend enough time with people paying attention to the way that they communicate. So you understand what their baseline is in expression, their baseline in facial expression, and their baseline in the words that they use. So when something doesn't seem right, you can tell that, hey, something is off because you've spent enough time with them. So like I said, presence is of the utmost important importance. Being accessible by people is very, very important. Now, when people outburst and outcry and they do things that are completely abnormal, how do we react to it? How do we react to it? What we want to realize and learn is that outbursts are, in essence, a cry for help. That's how we want to frame it. If people are acting abnormal, those outbursts are a cry for help. And let us look at the story of Androcolis. And there's many versions to the story. I'm going to use a summarized version uh, of the story to, uh, for the sake of, the, of this workshop. But Androcolis is a slave. And he lives in a town and a community. His master is very, very abusive towards him. And in this town and community, every so often, this lion is coming in, scaring the people away as if he's about to eat them. And then they run to their houses. And then they stay there until the line goes away. And this keeps happening time and time and time again. So one day, Androculus decides, you know what? I'm going to run away from my master. He's too abusive towards me. And Androculus runs away and he goes and seeks refuge in a cave for one night. And that one night when he has finally escaped all of this abuse, who comes into the cave? None other than the line. And at that time, Androculus makes peace with it, that you know what? I'm about to be eaten, and I'm about to be killed, and I'm about to be devoured. But as the lion is coming closer, Androculus starts to recognize 
that the shouting and screaming this lion is doing is not to scare the prey. The shouting and screaming this lion is doing is because the lion is in pain. The lion is in pain. So Andraculus starts getting closer and closer and closer, not making any you know sudden fast moves so that it scares the lion until he notices that there's a thorn bothering the lion. There's a thorn bothering the lion. And he creeps closer and then he fall uh, he pulls out the thorn that's inside the lion. And then finally the lion starts shouting and stops shouting and screaming and he actually embraces Androculus and he licks his face and he becomes close friends with him. Now eventually as time goes by the master and the community they start going and looking for Androculus that how could the slave run away and they find Androculus living in the jungle with this lion as his pet and they're truly amazed that the lion has so much loyalty towards Androculus and that was only because Androculus was able to recognize the lion's pain his outburst what people received as outbursts and going crazy he recognized as a cry for help, helped him get out of that pain, and the lion gave his loyalty to Andraculus. So now what we learn from this is that when people have outbursts and they act abnormal, they shout, they scream, they're angry, this is because someone is in pain and they don't know how to articulate it. They are in pain and they don't know how to articulate it. And outbursts, can be unique from one individual to another. They can be unique from one individual to another. For some people, it is just completely shutting down and isolating themselves. For some people, it can go to different types of addiction, substance, alcohol, promiscuity, even food. If you find someone that is overeating and they're constantly eating to help them deal with their pain, that's what they're doing, right? They use food as a crutch to increase those endorphins that go inside of themselves that make them feel better. And that is a form of outburst. So rather than passing judgment upon these people and not being merciful and compassionate, understand that those outbursts and those behaviors are a cry and plea for help. So rather than running away from them or rather than reprimanding them, recognize their pain, acknowledge it, help them navigate through it, and then they become loyal to you, just like the lion became to Andraculus. And that is when the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were able to say, O Messenger of Allah, may I be sacrificed for you. That deep sense of loyalty where they were willing to die for the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, because he was able to recognize their pain, alleviate it, eradicate it, invest in them to reach their highest potential. And thus they had that deep amount of loyalty for the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Awareness and understanding. Emotional awareness is simply one's ability to see and perceive emotional shifts, whereas emotional understanding is one's ability to understand the forces behind those shifts. So your awareness is to be able to see, okay, this person has gone from being very talkative to being very silent and quiet. This person has gone from someone that was calm and serene to becoming angry. That is what awareness is. So you're able to see the emotion shift from one to the other. That is awareness. Emotional understanding 
This is the deeper level. You understand what is causing them their pain. You understand what is the driving force behind the shift in emotion. And that is where your own experiences, your own pains, your own problems that you have gone through and have overcome and are still overcoming. I mean, in life, you're not going to overcome all of your trauma and all of your pain. Very few uh, are, are in that situation. So you recognize, okay, this action is a possible response to this. This shift in emotion is a possible response to this. So that deeper understanding is what is required when dealing with people's pain. So you can recognize the shift in emotion, but the deeper level is understanding what is the driving force behind the shift in that emotion. And that's where you look at people and your own understanding and your own knowledge that perhaps this could be it. So that if they're not able to articulate it, then at least you can see it from their facial expression, from their tone and body language. And sometimes you just have to ask them, is this what is causing you a problem? Or help me find out and figure out what is paining you and let's talk about it. <clears throat> Please excuse me. So that is uh, awareness and understanding. Now, what are pitfalls that you have to go through? And we are coming to a close, inshallah, very, very quickly. Um, so there are three pitfalls that you need to look out for. Number one, there's a high price to pay for ignoring your own emotional states. Feelings and desires that have not been acknowledged and examined will continue to haunt us and affect our behavior until we face them and deal with them appropriately. By ignoring our emotions, we slowly develop a lack of familiarity with ourselves. And this lack of familiarity leads to avoiding moments of inner reflection and contemplation. We feel awkward when we are alone, just as one feels awkward in the presence of a stranger we have effectively become strangers to ourselves. So that is what happens when we don't process and deal uh, with our emotions and with our traumas, we become strangers to ourselves. And that is why it is so important that we deal with our own problems and our own emotions and our own uh, experiences. And this starts off with just being honest with yourself that, you know what, these are the things that have happened to me in my life and I need to do something about the way that I feel about them. So start off with your own processing, with your own reflection. Don't just, you know, dig it deep inside of yourself, in the back of your mind, never wanting to deal with it. It only makes the problems worse. But recognize it yourself first. And then reach out for help. And this can be at a friend level, at a family level. If you think something deeper is needed, like a counselor or a therapist, there is no shame in that. There is no shame in that. And as a community, we have to eradicate that stigma in seeking professional help when it comes to psychological and mental health related issues. And then start working through that process of dealing with those traumas and dealing with that pain so that you don't feel afraid when you're by yourself and you don't feel alone and lonely by yourself, right? I, I, uh, in a normative state, when a person is by themselves, they shouldn't feel loneliness. Yes, if you've been you know, in isolation for a very, very long time, you can start to feel lonely. That's only normal. But you avoid being by yourself so that you don't feel that loneliness. That is not normal. Or you go to the exact opposite extreme where you completely isolate yourself from people intentionally so that people don't get to know who you are. That too is problematic as well. So that is the high price that people have to pay 
for ignoring their own emotional states. Number two, we should never be overconfident that the burdens we place on others are within their capacity simply because they do not say anything. Rather, we must fear Allah regarding these people who cannot speak. And this goes back to, you know, in a relationship, from time to time, we may place tasks upon people. And we may think it is such a simple task from, hey, you know, follow up with me on this. Or call me when such and such happens. Or call me when you do this. <coughs> Please excuse me. And we forget to realize that our capacity to deal with tasks and pain uh, and emotion is very, very different from someone else. So someone else's capacity is completely different. So never be overconfident in the sense that the burden that we place upon others is within their capacity. And this is, you know, at all levels, as a teacher from the homework that you assign to the responsibility that you give your students, as a parent, the way that you treat your child and the chores that they give them between the two spouses, you know, uh, the, the tasks and chores that we assign within the household, understand that people have different capacities to deal with, thing, with things. So you have to recognize their capacity and know their capacity before you assign those chores and those tasks and place any burdens upon people. Because yes, there are going to be people that cannot articulate the pain that they go through and the capacity that they have. So you have to do that for them and help them through it and help them through it. Number three, as actions become more automated, we no longer remain mindful of them. With the loss of mindfulness, there's also a loss in intent and deliberation. And that is when you're dealing with people, we automate processes in terms of the way that we talk to them and the assumption that everything is okay. So the fact that we don't genuinely ask people how they are anymore, we've automated the experience. How are you? Alhamdulillah, everything is fine. Okay, let's move on to what we need to talk about. But no, genuinely ask people, hey, are you doing okay? You know, is anything bothering you? And that shouldn't be considered an invasive question between two friends. Okay, obviously, if you meet a stranger in the parking lot of the grocery store, hey, are you okay? Okay, that's not a normal conversation to have unless they've shown a sign of distress. If they have shown a sign of distress, by all means, reach out. But if they're just walking along, you know, you don't have that deep, intimate conversation. That is going to be awkward. But with a close friend, there should be no harm in you genuinely ask them, are you okay? Is there something that you need help with? Is there something you want to talk about? I'm here if you need to talk. Just expressing those sort of things. So even simple questions like how are you should not be automated, but they should be done with uh, being mindful, right? And all of your actions, uh, as much as is possible, try to do them with intent. Try to do them with deliberation. Try to do them with an intent behind them. So if you go back to the case study we did, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he recognized in this man that his learning method was a, a logical one, was a logical one. So then he started speaking to him and asking him questions that would logically reach the conclusion that he wanted him to reach to, right? So those questions are very deliberate and they have an intention behind them. They're very deliberate and they have an intention behind them. And that's actually, this is something I wanted to do with the other pitfalls as well. So that the Prophet ﷺ, he recognizes that this man perhaps feels guilt and shame about his relationship or sins that he's had. 
And thus the Prophet ﷺ does not place a burden upon him that he cannot bear. He does not place a burden upon him that he cannot bear. And then also the Prophet ﷺ, he's dealt with his own emotions and only then is he able to help him. Only then is he able to help him. So those are the ways um, that we learn how the Prophet ﷺ dealt with that young man and avoiding the pitfalls and avoiding the pitfalls. So pitfall number one, make sure you deal with yourself first. Pitfall number two, don't place burdens upon people until you recognize the capacity that they have because there are some people that cannot articulate the capacity that they have. And then last but not least, try to be as mindful as you can with people. These are small sunnas that make a big difference in relationships, smiling at people always, shaking their hands when appropriate. And that has double meaning now, you know, COVID state, uh, and then also with the opposite gender, speak slowly, clearly, articulate yourself, regularly repeat something I struggle with all the time. Uh, but I do try to repeat it as much as I can so that people understand. Express gratitude to people. Make them feel appreciated. If you do something wrong, be the first to apologize. Supplicate for others and make dua for them. Be there for others. Just be present. Be available. Be accessible. And when mistakes are made, forgive and overlook. And these small sunnas make a huge difference in how welcoming you are and how you are perceived and how you're able to help people. And then at the end of the day, if you have tried everything and you have done everything to the best of your ability, understand that at the end of the day, it's not your fault. And I think of the examples of Nuh alayhi salam, a prophet of Allah that had a disbelieving child. I think of the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam, who had a disbelieving father who used to create idols. I think of the example of the wife of Lut, who as a prophet of Allah, was not able to get his wife to believe, right? If you have tried your best and you've done everything right, yet you are not able to help people, understand that the results are only in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is upon you is to try your best. And this is why a plethora of recent studies now suggest that the foundation for emotional capacities like emotional management, emotional flexibility, and emotional understanding is laid primarily in early childhood. An emotionally unintelligent adult is often the result and victim of emotionally unintelligent parenting methods. You will not be able to fix people in their adulthood alone, right? This is tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the way they were raised and parented. This is the traumatic experiences that they have had. And as long as you've tried your best, that is the utmost that you can do. And again, I want to share that um, documentary with you, the, the wisdom of trauma. This really articulates that very well, that when we try to help people, we often look at their present state, but we forget about it's their past that brought them where they are today. And you need to be able to help people with their past before you can help them with their present. So understand that if you're unable to help, it's not your fault. This is something greater than yourself and leave that up to Allah for your ajr and reward is already written. The resources I wanted to share with you with the heart and mind, uh, this is by Sheikh Mikhail Smith, The Emotional Intelligence in Islam by myself, the four-part YouTube series. And the third thing I would mention just uh, to highlight is that documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma um, by, uh, by Mate. 
uh, is as a great resource as well. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Anything that I've said that is correct is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And all praise is due to him. And anything that I've said that is incorrect is from myself and shaitan. And I seek forgiveness from Allah and from you for that. I pray that this was of benefit to you and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us uh, emotional intelligence in dealing with people and allows us to follow the example of the Prophet who welcomes the people that are pushed away, who recognizes the pain in people and helps them overcome it, who recognizes the potential in people and helps them uh, you know, master it and, and, and profess it. And then that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes of those that are able to overlook people's faults and earn forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for it. Allahumma ameen. Subhanak Allahumma bihamnik ashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. And uh, I have an optional case study that I'm going to leave with you guys. Uh, Inshallah ta'ala. That um, if you download the PDF of this presentation, then inshallah you'll have this case study to implement that you know. How this is another example of how the Prophet displayed emotional intelligence with his wife Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. So I'll leave that with you, inshallah ta'ala. And I will stop sharing my screen now. And we can open up the floor for questions and answers. Jazakumullah khairan. Jazakumullah khairan, Shaykhna. Uh, it was honestly a beautiful, beautiful um, lecture, a beautiful, beautiful series as well. And, you know, I just want to put in a uh, personal note here. Um, a couple of days ago, my uh, two-year-old, we spent a couple of days in the hospital with her. And uh, it's, it's so, subhanAllah, uh, amazing that, that you touch on pain here. Because uh, I was actually going to not be able to do the seminar if, it, if uh, her hospitalization persisted. Uh, but every single point, I found myself taking notes. And, you know, my, my notes are just uh, uh, full right now. And I was texting notes to my family as well on WhatsApp. Um, so Jazakumullah khairan from the bottom of my heart for this message. Um, and I, I do I do want to dive into the uh, to the questions uh, first. And the first question that I have, Shehna, is how can emotional intelligence uh, benefit us when we're when we're giving da'wah? So benefit the du'at when they're when they're giving da'wah. Excellent. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala amma ba'd. So if you apply the framework of emotional intelligence, by definition, what you're doing is recognizing your own emotions, management your own emotions, recognizing it in someone else for the sake of achieving a goal. The goal in giving dawah to people is to help people recognize what the truth is. The goal is never to convert. Remember, the, that, the, the concept of conversion is purely in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What we're there for is to help people uh, recognize what the truth is and then the acceptance of that truth is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So with that being said, when you are giving da'wah to people, and I use the term da'wah very, very generally, Muslim, non-Muslim, it applies to both. Before you can actually help someone accept something good, you have to help them deal with their pain, right? So when you effectively want to give da'wah to someone, before you start preaching to them, make sure that there's nothing that is hindering their acceptance of good. So you want to understand who this person is, where they're coming from, what their challenges are, help them through those challenges, and then recognize the potential that they have. The potential to become a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to become an inhabitant of paradise, right? That's what you want for them. So now that is how you would do it. 
and this concept of you know just uh, copying and pasting and being very robotic and mechanical in dawa i think from time to time that may work when you're debating with someone but again how many people convert to due to a debate yes you may have some but that's not what usually happens for a lot of people when they think about conversion they think about what islam does for them in terms of a personal relationship that they have with a friend or that they've experienced themselves in terms of dealing with their pain or maximizing the potential that they have right you have to understand that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has naturally innately placed in people goodness you have to recognize that in people but people lose sight of that right the sins that we commit the addictions that we have they all they 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 darken that goodness and they they cover up that goodness so you have to help people recognize that goodness within of them themselves and help them reach that potential so when it comes to dawa i would say let us reframe what dawa actually means dawa from a muslim's perspective is conveying of the truth what does that truth look like it's helping people navigate through their pain so as you help people navigate through their pain and you make the truth more apparent to them leave it in the hands of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide them thereafter so if you look at the sahaba radiallahu anhum all the pain that they had and understand i use this pain loosely being upon shirk is a sort of pain shirk does not make logical sense it does not make emotional sense it does not make spiritual sense you're going to be emotionally spiritually logically conflicted when you're committing shirk so part of the pain that you're uplifting is the pain of shirk itself that's part and parcel of the other struggles that they have so again if you if you use this long-term prophetic framework of helping people navigate through their pain recognize their potential helping them achieve it and then overlooking their faults i think that is the framework that we need to apply to, to long-term dawah because again it's not just helping people become muslim but it's helping them stay within islam as well but we want to get get over these statistics that you know islam is the fastest growing religion uh in the west it's also one of the fastest religions of people leaving and a lot of that has to do with uh our lack of emotional intelligence uh in dealing with people Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq. I mean, Zakumullah khayyad and Shaykhna. And no, you know, you're, you're, I, I didn't quite know that the realm of emotional intelligence is so vast. You know, we're, when we're brought up, we're not really brought up as a uh, textbook understanding of emotional intelligence. So to hear this, especially when it comes to the field of da'wah, with, with NJ Da'wah doing a lot of the work as well, uh, makes it, um, makes, makes a lot of sense. And then I, I just want to hit you with a quick question, Shaykhna. You said, whatever you were created for will become easy for you what was that in reference to and where where is it quoted from uh so this is from the hadith of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam where uh the sahabi radiallahu anhu he asked the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that you know if everything is created for us and you know the inhabitants of paradise are created for the inhabitants of paradise and the inhabitants of hellfire are created to be inhabitants of hellfire what is the point of doing actions what is the point of doing actions and the Prophet وسلم, said, that each and every one of you uh, will do the actions for what uh, they were created for, that those actions become facilitated for you due to what you were created for. So if you were created to be from the inhabitants of paradise, you will do the actions of the people of paradise. If you were created to be from the inhabitants of the hellfire, you're going to end up doing from the, the actions from the inhabitants of the hellfire, meaning that the choice is yours. If you choose to do the right actions, inshallah, they'll lead to Jannah. If you choose to do the wrong actions, 
don't be surprised if you end up in the, in the wrong destination. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all. But as a general principle we, that we have in the Arabic language that says, that the lessons are derived from the generality of the wording and not due to the specific reasoning of, of revelation or, 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 or why the hadith was brought forth. So while this hadith is speaking about Jannah and Jahannam, it also applies at a psychological level that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us differently in the sense that some of us will be more mathematically inclined, language inclined, artistically inclined, you know, uh, science inclined. So those natural inclinations, they're not meant to be ignored, but rather they're meant to be recognized as potential and you maximize the achievement of that potential and find a way to help Islam and the Ummah through uh, using those things, inshallah. Uh, the next question I have is um, when do you know that taking pain or negativity from someone is too much? And I think this goes on the uh, aspect of creating boundaries, right? So how do we create boundaries? How do we know that this is my boundary and somebody else might have another boundary? Excellent. So in, in terms of, of personal boundaries, it's again about self-recognition that you have to understand that you have to be emotionally healthy in order to help people. And if you're going through something in life that is very taxing upon you and very difficult for you, from time to time, you will need to set boundaries. And that looks like, okay, I've received your text message. Please give me a few days to respond. Do that with emails, do that with phone calls and let people know that I'm acknowledging receipt of your communication, but I'm dealing with something right now and I'll get back to you. So you need to set boundaries when you feel that you're not able to function on a day-to-day -day level. Right? If you're not able to function on a day-to-day -day level and deal with your daily stresses, you need to set those boundaries. And those boundaries are for the sake of your benefit and also for the sake of, of the benefit of your relationship. That imagine you're completely burnt out. You cannot offer and give that which you do not possess for yourself. Right. So if you are unable to deal with your own processes, you'll not be able to help others with it. So from time to time, there's nothing wrong with saying, look, I need a break right now. Give me a few days and I'll get back to you. Now, barring that this is an extreme emergency, life and death, I think people should be respectful of that. And when people say they need space, people should not take it personally. People should not naturally assume, you know, did I do something wrong that they're asking for space? That is not the way should, we should perceive it. We should perceive it as, you know what, this person is going through something. Let me now ask them, hey, is there anything that I can do to help? And... It, during that time, make dua for them as well. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make things easy for you and guide you to what is best, right? These sort of things will go a, a very long way. Now, in terms of setting boundaries for others, you can't set other people's boundaries. This is something that they should do for themselves. You can help people navigate what their boundaries are. You can help educate people on how to set boundaries and what boundaries to set, but you shouldn't set those boundaries for them. This is something that people need to do for themselves, inshallah. I think we're just uh, conditioned to take everything personally. So when somebody asks us for space, we think there's something wrong with us or they don't want to see us and stuff like that. Of course. Uh, you, you know, let me just share a, a very quick anecdote from the from the seerah of the Prophet In Sahil Bukhari, in, in the chapter of marriage, Abdurrahman ibn Awf, anhu, he's come to Medina and uh, he was paired up with a sahabi, uh, Sa'ad ibn Rabia. And it's a beautiful story how Sa'ad, sacrifices his his family his business one of his houses and he says take it and abdurrahman ibn Auf, he says no just guide me to the market so now 
Abdurrahman, one day he's walking through the market and the Prophet sees him with a yellow stain on his shirt. And he recognizes that that yellow stain is, you know, due to celebration and, and wedding and stuff. So the Prophet asks him, did you get married? And he says, yes. And he said, did you have a walima? And he says, no. And he says, that, you know, have a, a celebration, even if it is um, with uh, the sacrificing of a sheep. Now, can you imagine if a close friend of yours, a companion of yours got married and they didn't invite you to the wedding and they didn't even tell you about it? How personally offended would you be? And that's like one of the lessons from this hadith. That Abdurrahman bin Auf, one of the Muhajirun, one of his closest companions, he ended up getting married, and the Prophet didn't take it personally. Like, mashallah, I'm happy for you. And he takes it as an opportunity to, uh, to educate him that when you get married in Islam, you have the walima and you give the mahar. And it talks about the gold that he gave to his wife. And he used it as an educating process. And for me, that is beautiful, where you are selfless in your relationship. And obviously, that takes so much work. That this is why it is the example of the Prophet Muhammad and it's not my example or someone else's. Because for the average human being, it is difficult. But that's something that you strive towards, that you're genuinely invested in the individual and you don't take personally the actions that they do. You assume the best and then you overlook when mistakes are made, as the Prophet did uh, in this case. Allahu Anam. Absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. Um, I, so the, the next question, Shehna, is... Can you expand on the quote that you shared? Islam is just a greater form of tawbah. Islam is just a greater form of tawbah. Excellent. So we were talking in the context of this great, great gift that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that when someone accepts Islam, all of their sins are forgiven. All of their sins are forgiven. And someone that is born into Islam, they may feel that, hey, the one that converted to Islam gets this amazing gift of all of their sins being forgiven. How about those of us that are born into Islam, but we've committed sin, we've committed sin. Where is that great gift for us where our sins are forgiven? So for the born Muslim, when they make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this we need to understand tawbah in this context of, you know, recognizing the sin, giving it up, uh, asking forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, returning the rights of the people, following up a good deed with a bad deed, with sincerity and before death or before the sun rises from the west, the conditions that we're familiar with for Toba, that when you do that act of Toba, then your sins are forgiven as well. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you a greater gift that he doesn't uh, necessarily give to the one that is converted. And there's a difference of opinion. And that is that Allah converts your sins to good deeds on the scales in the hereafter. Uh, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in uh, Surah Al-Furqan, Except for those people that believe, uh, repent and do righteous deeds, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will exchange their bad deeds to good ones uh, on the day of judgment. So that is the extra gift. So now, if you understand the, the concept of Tawbah, Tawbah is to give up the sin uh, and to repent and feel remorse over it, right? So the sin that you are giving up when you accept Islam is shirk and kufr. That is the, the, the sin that you're giving up. And when you accept Islam, that is your repentance. That is your repentance of giving up shirk and tawbah. So that is how we uh, brought both the both of them to do uh, together. That Islam is the greatest form of repentance. Islam is the greatest form of repentance. And that when a person converts, all their sins are forgiven. And for those of us that are in Islam and when you make a mistake or a sin, you repent to Allah 
Allah forgives you for your sin and also exchanges your bad deeds uh, for good ones. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Uh, and then we, we have a question in the in the chat as well. And um, uh, I think the you know while you were going through the different ayat and the different hadith, uh, maybe this question came up like how did the Prophet actually explain these verses and explain the Quran? So the question is, uh, can you describe how the Prophet taught his companions the Quran? Did he explain every ayat in, de in detail or was it kind of like, you know, an, an experience or it was revealed during a certain time? Excellent. Jazakallah khairan. Um, when it comes to the education process of the Prophet wasallam, I want you to think about how many halakas do we hear that the Prophet wasallam had? How many halakas do we actually know of? That the Prophet said, you know what, every Tuesday night we're going to gather together in the masjid and we're going to study tafsir or study aqid or any of those things. That didn't exist. That didn't happen. In fact, the only thing that we do have that happened consistently was the fact that the Prophet gave the Jummah khutbah and that was one educational process and that was short and sweet. And imagine, so short, so short and sweet that his khutbah was shorter than Surah Al-A'la and Surah Al-Ghashiyah combined, right? His salah was longer than his khutbah. So short, sweet, to the point. And then also he used to have a particular day where he used to educate the women in the community. A particular day where he used to educate the women in the community. The vast majority of education that took place with the Sahaba radiallahu anhum was through personal interaction. So after salah is finished in the masjid, the Prophet wasallam turns around and asks them, who amongst you has a dream? And he talks about their dream. And then the Prophet ﷺ just socializing and educating the people. That's what used to happen. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they saw the Qur'an in motion. They saw the Qur'an in physical implementation through the action of the Prophet ﷺ. And that is why when Aisha radiallahu anha, she was asked about him, he said, Kana al-Qur'an, that his whole being, his whole presence was the Qur'an. So there wasn't a formal process of, hey, let's sit down and discuss this ayah by ayah. That is only something that took place, to the best of my knowledge, uh, by the Sahaba, Abdullah ibn Abbas and others. They did this with the Tabi'een. But that didn't happen with the Sahaba. What they did was, they saw how the Prophet was. They saw what was happening in terms of historical context and applied the revelation to that. And that is how they learned the Quran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. We'll hit you with another question. Um, how do we balance the Prophet's image as being a fierce warrior during battle and then an empathetic, compassionate role model? Because we, we talk about both, right? But the Prophet says, but, but the Prophet peace be upon him wasn't somebody that just kind of you know gave in to the 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 people. Um, and he was also somebody that was, you know, a fierce warrior whenever we talk about him in the battlefield. So how do we reconcile the two? Excellent. When you look at the emotional state of the Prophet wasallam, you'll notice that he had reached such a high level that he only got angry for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he only got happy for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now when the Prophet wasallam is on the battlefield, we see that he's on the battlefield, not for any personal emotion, not for any personal vendetta, but for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And these people were afforded every opportunity possible to avoid going to the battlefield. They were avoided every single opportunity. And when all opportunities were rejected, then that is when the battle uh, took place. 
And during that time, we see that the Prophet ﷺ shows his vulnerability as well. That if you look at the night before the Battle of Badr, the Prophet ﷺ is standing in prayer and he's crying that, Oh Allah, if you do not give us victory tomorrow, perhaps there may be no one left on this earth to worship you, right? So that is the pain that he went uh, through. That if we are not successful in this battle tomorrow, Oh Allah, perhaps there may be no one left. So he's carrying that burden with him that this was for the sake of protecting Islam and not for the sake of any personal vendetta. So if we step back and we understand the emotional state of the Prophet wasallam, everything that he did, and even in his emotions, they were for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He got angry when the boundaries of Allah were violated. He became happy when people did something that pleased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you're able to reach such a state by overcoming your own carnal desires and tempering your own soul, then that is how you reach that example of where you can be this brave, courageous warrior and that not, not let that not affect you to be you know, a soft, gentle soul with your family uh, as is required. It also teaches us a very valuable lesson that one personality trait um, cannot be used in all situations. But every situation requires a different personality trait and that requires an emotional understanding and awareness uh, as well uh, and experience. And that is what the Prophet ﷺ displayed. And then last but not least, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, the Prophet ﷺ, he had his own experiences. He also had the guidance of revelation, but then he also had the uh, wilaya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which part of it looked like that the Prophet ﷺ was taught. And if that if there was a, a mistake that was made in emotional intelligence, the Prophet ﷺ was gently corrected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. So that is my understanding of the question, and uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And then I think uh, we just have time for one more question. Um, and I'll go back to the story that you shared about Imam, Imam Ahmed, uh, about when a person asked him, is, uh, is good manners nine-tenth of overlooking people's mistakes? And he, and he replied with that all of good manners is look, overlooking the mistakes. So can you expand on that a little bit? And, and what do we mean by um, overlooking all of the mistakes? Excellent. So the, the narration to the best of my recollection is... Um, a man asked Imam Ahmad, Ya Imam Ahmad, is it true that nine-tenths of good character is overlooking people's mistakes? And he says, rather, it is all of good character. It is all of good character. And this is not to show that uh, to say that there's nothing else in terms of akhlaq except for overlooking people's mistakes. But this is to say that one of the most important traits in relationships, in mu'amalat, is being able to overlook people's mistakes. And as I mentioned, these are human errors that we make towards one another. Human errors that we make towards one another. That perhaps someone forgot to call you. Someone didn't ask how you're doing. Someone didn't apologize for a mistake. Someone didn't thank you. Someone didn't open the door for you as you were walking and you're struggling. You know, those sort of human errors that take place. Don't take those personally. Overlook those, pardon and forget, and just move on. Like, don't hold them over the heads of people. That is what we're referring to. If a person makes a, a religious-based mistake, like you see them you know, making a mistake in their salah, no, that's not what you overlook. That is, you have to advise them gently, take them to the corner, advise them privately. If you know the hadith or ayah, show them the hadith or ayah. Like that's how you're meant to do it. But in terms of personal matters, that is socially related to you, 
and relationship related, you have to overlook them. And that is the only way relationships will grow. And that's the only way, in all honesty, you retain a, a clean heart as well. That the more grudges that you hold, uh, the more you want to hold people accountable, it doesn't harm them as much as you're harming yourself. That is the reality of it. You know, you grow your own white hair, you increase your own stress levels, you increase your own anxiety by holding those grudges. But as you let people off the hook and don't hold them for their social transgressions, then the relationship grows, love prospers, and, uh, and, and people grow closer together. And Allah knows best. Jazakallah khairim, Shaykhna. And I think oh, yeah. we are at time. I just want to thank you again. Uh, may Allah continue to put barakah in your work. Um, I know definitely I uh, benefit from this a lot, and I hope our viewers did as well. Inshallah, the material that Sheikh Navad has made accessible, uh, you guys can use the link on the chat to access all of that material. I've already ordered my copy of the book that Sheikh Navad uh, was mentioning, and I bookmarked his uh, series on emotional intelligence on YouTube as well. Definitely something that uh, I, I want to look into a little bit more. Um, and Sheikhna, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for our viewers for tuning in for this webinar. Inshallah, we have uh, many more to come. Uh, and with that, uh, we will say Jazakumullah khairan. Uh, we'll, we'll give you guys back the rest of your day. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.